Please join me in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your written word, which reveals to us the living word of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that in him has been revealed all wisdom and grace, all knowledge and understanding, all truth and hope, all life and light. In his name we pray. Amen. A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Colossians chapter 1 from verse 15. The word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. Sometimes you're reading the Bible, and it's a passage that you swear you have read 50 times, but you look at it, and there's something jumping off the page at you that you swear you have never seen before in your life. Somebody snuck in and added something new to the Bible, and, uh, and yet you realize it's the same Bible you've been using for 20 years, and uh, this happens to me frequently. And I'm hoping, as we begin the first six chapters of John, uh, we're not going to do it all today, but over the rest of the fall, as we go through the first six chapters of the gospel according to John, my hope, even if you have been in churches your entire life, or if it's your first time in a Christian church ever, my hope is that you're going to see things every single week that you swear were not there before because they're going to jump out at you. They're going to become alive to you. And my prayer is that you're going to see the beauty and the power and the majesty of your best friend Jesus in a way that you have never seen before. We're going to pray that Jesus captures your heart in a new way and gives you a new love and a new repentance and a new readiness to sacrifice and yield and give everything you have for Jesus because he is that good. We're going to look at John chapter 1, the very beginning. We're going to look at the first five verses and then verses 10 to 14 and verse 18 just to get a picture of who Jesus is. Is. So follow along with me as I read from the first chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. He writes this, In the beginning was the Word. Greek is logos. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things that were made all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. 
And in verse 10, he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, uh, or, or human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. What do we see here? What we see here is the identity of Jesus revealed. John's account of this story of Jesus is a little different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke because the other three evangelists all start the story with John the Baptist proclaiming a way in the desert for Jesus to come. And yet, John the Baptist gets in here. He's later in this chapter. We're not dissing John the Baptist. But what John does, John the Evangelist, not the Baptist. There are two Johns. One's called the, John the Presbyter. Uh, uh, you know what that means. And the other's called John the Baptist. John the Presbyter, literally John the Elder, wrote the letters of John, probably Revelation and this Gospel. Uh, don't confuse the Baptist and the Presbyterian. They're different Johns. But John the Baptist is in here. We're not dissing John the Baptist. But... but but John the Evangelist, John the, the Elder, begins his story earlier. He begins his story of Jesus the way in the same place that Moses began his story about God. He begins in the beginning. As Moses said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So here in verse 1, John writes, In arche ein hologos, kai hologos ein prostan thion, kai theos ein hologos. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It's remarkable. That parallel to, to Genesis 1, when God says, let us make man in our image, and all that's there is God. So it's the plurality of the Godhead con conceiving it, it within itself and speaking, and there's no, there's no matter to carry sound waves at this point. The Word coming from God is creating the very matter to carry the sound wave of the Word coming from God. His Word speaking and creating all the cosmos. And here, John is saying that Word was the Son. And He became flesh. The very Word of God Himself that is God and, and is with God. That plurality of being one God but multiple persons. The foundation of our doctrine of the Trinity. John is saying that the Jesus of Nazareth that he walked with for three years. And he speaks from the plural. We have seen him. We've seen his glory. He's saying that Jesus of Nazareth is eternal God in reality. And he is the agent through which all things were made. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Nothing, without him nothing that has been made was made. 
He says it twice because he's Jewish. He doubles everything. That's, that's Jewish parallelism. Uh, he says it twice for emphasis. There's nothing in the cosmos that was not made through the direct, powerful ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, pre-incarnate as the eternal Logos. He's saying Jesus is God. That's why the apostles in the book of Acts called Jesus the author of life, the one through whom every caterpillar has been made, every photon, every neuron star, everything. Jesus is God. Now, you say, Greg, that's a rather exclusive truth claim. And, and it is. Uh, it seems so exclusive, like I'm saying that Jesus is the one true religion, uh, which would imply that other ones that don't point to Jesus aren't true. And, and that sort of truth claim sounds very narrow within our cultural context. And, and yet, let me just say that every religion, every philosophy, every perspective on reality has something within it that is true. Uh, all truth is God's truth. Uh, you know, we can raid the Egyptians, so to speak, in terms of uh, uh, like, like, like the author of, or the collector of Proverbs did, taking a whole bunch of Egyptian Proverbs and spinning them in a different context and saying, no, this is actually true, but its real ground is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. Uh, there's, there, there are many great things in all sorts of, of different perspectives. And there are a lot of different views of religions. Uh, and yet modern, you know, inclusivism that wants to say that all religions are equally true and all perspectives are equally valid and all perspectives are equally false and all perspectives are equally invalid, that, that kind of approach breaks down. Uh, because in saying that every religious perspective, every view of religions is equally valid, uh, what you're actually doing is covert exclusivism because what you're really saying is everyone else's views of religions are equally valid and this is my view of religion and it is the only true one and if you disagree with me, you're wrong! And I don't see how that's any more inclusive than Jesus saying, I'm the Son of God and I'm the only Savior and come to me and I will give you life. Um, I don't know why you would want to privilege a view of religions that's basically a white European uh, perspective that, that any African theologian would tell you is colonial in nature. I don't know why you would want to bias a 21st century perspective as if our own era has reached the pinnacle of insight into reality. We all have grandparents and great-grandparents, and when we think of things our grandparents and great-grandparents believed 80 years ago, we roll our eyes with embarrassment and understand that your great-grandchildren will roll their eyes with embarrassment over things that you've always assumed to be true. We don't want to privilege our particular point in time as if our time or our culture is the pinnacle of civilization and the climax of reality that alone sees things as they truly are. The real question is, is which of these exclusive truth claims, the view that all religions are equally valid or the view of Jesus, uh, which of these exclusive truth claims, since they're all exclusive, actually accords with reality? Which exclusive truth claim can actually enable us to love people who differ from us? Which exclusive truth claim can transform us into people who can have our strongly held convictions without thinking ourselves superior to others who differ from us? And on all those questions, I see a savior who makes an exclusive truth claim who says you are wrong and you are probably arrogant about it 
and I forgive you as a ground of humility from which I can actually love my enemies because Jesus, when I was his enemy, died for me. But even if you're a dyed-in-the-mold atheist, and I've been there and I've done that, I grew up with that, um, you should want this to be true, friends, because an atheistic perspective says that 100 billion years from now, when all the stars have gone out and there is no one else to even know that humanity exists, we will have meant nothing. And our existence will have been inconsequential. And if Jesus is telling the truth, and if the early Christians were right in recognizing Jesus as who he claimed to be, then there is a foundation for hope and a foundation for love and a foundation for justice and a foundation for sacrificing ourselves in the interests of others because we believe that we will last beyond the grave. But have no doubt about what's being claimed here. This is an exclusive claim that Jesus is the God through whom the creation was, was made. And it's a claim that fits everything else we know about Jesus from, from the early historical documents. St. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 said, The Son is the image of the invisible God, his replica. For in him all things were created. He's the maker. Things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the glue sustaining the cosmos. It's as if God spoke creation into existence, but it wasn't a staccato like, and then the world's there. It's a legato in which God's voice is continually sustaining the world, the hum of God through Jesus, the word. In him all things consist. They are held together by his powerful what? His powerful word. We see in Hebrews, the author to Hebrews, who we don't know what his name was, or her name, I think his name, says in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, he writes, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, Logos. Have your book of Revelation, in which this same John would write many, many decades later, uh, and in his old age imprisoned, and, and in this vision that John would receive in chapter 1, God speaks to him and says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And in the very last chapter of that same revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is to come identifying as the same God throughout Jesus' ministry. He was dropping hints left and right to anybody who was Jewish would have picked up on it. That's why they tried to kill him. You know, religious fanatics don't kill people for saying, love your enemy. They kill you for claiming to be God. Jesus said he had the authority to forgive sins against God. I mean, you realize how ridiculous that is if it's not true that he's God. Uh, you know, I could break into your house, I know where some of you live, and I could steal your vintage Atari 2600, and you would never know it was me because I would wear gloves, like in the movies. And uh, and then I could get really convicted, and God could tell me that was a horrible thing. You know, think of all the children who don't have Atari 2600s to play with now and can't find an app that mimics it. 
And, uh, and, and so I feel really guilty. And I go to Cindy Campbell and I say, Cindy Campbell, I'm so sorry. I broke into their house and stole their Atari 2600. And she's going to say, Greg, you're talking to the wrong person. You need to go talk to them and ask their forgiveness. Jesus is saying, I forgive you for what you did against God. That's a statement. Jesus said he would be the judge of humanity at the last day. The Lord Yahweh was the judge of humanity. Jesus claimed to be able to grant eternal life as only God can do. The the temple in Jerusalem in the ancient world was the very presence of God in which God as a theophany radiated his presence within the Holy of Holies. The presence of God. And Jesus said, I am greater than the temple. Because I'm not just a theophany. I'm an incarnation of God. Uh, He said his own kingdom was God's kingdom. And then he let people worship him. In Matthew 2, the Magi came and they bowed down and worshipped him. You say, Greg, they were a bunch of Parthians. They believed in lots of gods. They had no problem adding one to their pantheon. But in in chapter 14 of Matthew, this is the most Jewish gospel in Matthew. After walking on water in the storm, everybody bowed down and worshipped Jesus. In Matthew 28, after his resurrection, Jesus says, meet me on a mountain. And they all go to the mountain and it says they all worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't rebuke them for doing that. You know, angels rebuke you if you do that. In the book of Revelation, John sees a glorious shining angel and he bows down at its feet and it says, don't do it. Get up. I'm just a servant like everyone else. Worship God alone. And yet Jesus was complicit, encouraging us to worship him and not rebuking us for it. He took the title of son of man, claiming the the identity of the one seen in in Daniel's Hebrew vision, chapter seven of, of one with great glory and sovereign power who would rule for all eternity and all the world would worship this figure. And Jesus said, oh, I'm the son of man. I'm the one all the world is going to worship. The glory of God emanates out from Jesus. Here in John one, we see the clearest definition of the deity of the eternal Son of God who became incarnate flesh in Jesus. We see the identity of Jesus revealed as Theos, as God. And this means what you do with Jesus is the most important decision you're ever going to make in your life, friends, because God the Son became flesh. That's what it says in verse 14. The Word became flesh, sarks in Greek, and made His dwelling, pitched His tent among us. Uh, you know, I want you to think about flesh for a minute. I want you to imagine you are in the Straubs in the Central West End or Clayton or Webster Groves or wherever the other one is, and, and you're at the meat counter, and this is Straubs. So it's like the really high-end USDA prime steaks that you can't get even at Deerberg's. It's like the really good stuff that only restaurants get. And you're looking, and they're like little hockey puck Saratoga ribeyes that have had all the fat taken out and twine wrapped around them to hold them together and then then for the less discerning there's there's the filet mignon wrapped in in the uh the the bacon that's not quite as juicy or flavorful as the saratoga ribeye and then there's the big you know fred flintstone bone-in monster steak and and then you know you see the the you know the cowboy ribeye they call it You, you see uh uh the perfectly clean chicken breasts that have been flattened out perfectly. Payard is the technical term for your chicken scallopini. You see the ground veal that you buy by the pound, the preformed half-pound Kobe beef hamburger patties, and, and, and it's, it's flesh. We're made out of flesh. We're made out of meat. As human beings, we're made of meat. 
and the Word became flesh. In uh, Terry Bisson's award-winning 1990 short story, we listen in as an alien traveler from another cosmos reports on his investigation into the residence of the planet Earth. He speaks. They're made out of meat. Meat? Meat. They're made out of meat. Meat? There's no doubt about it. We picked up several from different parts of the planet, took them aboard our recon vessels, and probed them all the way through. They're completely meat. That's impossible. What about the radio signals, the messages to the stars? They use the radio waves to talk, but the signals don't come from them. The signals come from machines. So who made the machines? That's who we really want to contact. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. That's, that's ridiculous. How can meat make a machine? You're asking me to believe in sentient meat. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. These creatures are the only sentient race in that sector, and they're made out of meat. Maybe they're like the Orphalet. You know, a carbon-based intelligence that goes through a meat stage. Nope. They're born meat, and they die meat. We studied them for several of their lifespans, which didn't take long. Do you have any idea what the lifespan of meat is? Spare me. Okay. Maybe they're only part meat. You know, like the, the Wedele, uh, a meat head with an electron plasma brain inside. Nope. We thought of that, since they do have meat heads, like the Wedele. But I told you, we probed them. They're meat all the way through. No brain? Oh, there's a brain, all right. It's just the brain is made out of meat. That's what I've been trying to tell you. So, so what does the thinking? You're not understanding, are you? You're refusing to deal with what I'm telling you. The brain does the thinking. The meat. Thinking meat? You're asking me to believe in thinking meat? Yes, thinking meat. Conscious meat. Loving meat. Dreaming meat. The meat is the whole deal. Are you beginning to get the picture or do I have to start all over? Oh my gosh, you're serious then. They're made out of meat. Thank you. Finally, yes, they are indeed made out of meat, and they've been trying to get in touch with us for almost a hundred of their years. Oh my gosh, so what does this meat have in mind? Well, first, it wants to talk to us. Then I imagine it wants to explore the universe, contact other sentience, swap ideas and information, the usual. We're supposed to talk to meat. That's the idea. That's the message they're sending out by radio. Hello. Anyone out there? Anybody home? That sort of thing. They actually do talk then? They use words, ideas, concepts? Oh, yes, except they do it with meat. <laughs> I thought you told me they used radio. They do, but what do you think is on the radio? Meat sounds. You know, when you slap a flab of meat, it makes that noise. They talk by flapping their meat at each other. They can even sing by squirting air through their meat. Oh my gosh, singing meat, this is altogether too much. We're made out of meat, folks. And the most scandalous passage in the Gospel of John is that the eternal Word, the voice of God, the Logos through whom the cosmos was made, God the Son, became meat. He became Sark. We talk about incarnation. Has that carn in the middle, like a carnivore who only eats what? Meat. He became flesh. He became fully human. What did the eternal son become? But he became a meat creature in order to save creatures who are made 
out of meat. That's the story. That's salvation. John elsewhere warns that the deceiving spirit is the one who denies the human nature of Jesus, noting that, quote, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that change, friends, was permanent. Throughout history, God had revealed himself visibly to his people in what theologians call theophanies, appearances of God. Think of Moses and the burning bush speaking to him, telling him to take off his sandals because he was in the presence of one who is holy. You think of the Israelites being led through the desert by, by a fire during the night and by a, a plume of smoke in, 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 in the daytime. You, you think of these various incarnations or appearances of God, and yet with Jesus, what is different is that those are not merely appearances, but it is a permanent incarnation in which Jesus of Nazareth is still resurrected and ascended to heaven and at the right hand of the Father, still incarnate. A permanent change in which God permanently united himself to flesh. It's what most offends Muslims about the Christian story, uh, is that God himself would do something that seems to them so shameful and so humiliating for a holy God to unite himself permanently to meet. And Jesus is alive right now, interceding for us. You know, it, it, and, 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 and he is the very locus in his physical body at the right hand of the Father is the very locus of your salvation and mine because it's at that point that our our human nature is, is enmeshed to Jesus' human nature, united to him, St. Paul says, uh, and so that we therefore become partakers of, of, of his divine nature as well as uh, by being in communion with one who is himself properly God, such that St. Peter can say that you Christians have been made partakers of the divine nature through him. St. Paul can, can tell the Colossian Christians in chapter 3 of Colossians that you died and your lives are now hidden with Christ in God. It's Christianity's defining miracle that the logos, the word, became flesh so that flesh can be transformed by that same logos by being in union with the Godhead in the person of Jesus. Eternally human, eternally God, Jesus our Savior, glorified, resurrected, ascended at the right hand and coming again. The incarnation, friends, was an act of God's absolute and pure love. Verse 14, John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, filled with grace and truth. He became flesh because he was filled with grace. That's mercy and empathy and compassion towards sinners. That's an overwhelming love for you, even when you wanted nothing to do with him. It's filled with the kindness and the feeling and the empathy and the compassion and the generosity overflowing from God himself. The incarnation was an incarnation of love. Professor of theoretical physics at the University of Oxford, Ard Lewis, um, leads an interdisciplinary research group studying problems on the, the border between chemistry, physics, and biology, but he's also a Christian. And I heard him speak once, and uh, he was talking about how when he was working on his, do doing his doctoral work, he and his roommates had a fish tank of tropical fish. And every day he would feed the fish because he loved the fish. He loved to watch him. He could just sit and watch him all day. It was so peaceful. They were so beautiful. They were so intelligent. And yet every time he'd go get the fish food and go up to the tank, 
to feed them, they'd, they'd, they'd freak out and they'd, you know, get away from me. And as he watched, every time he would love them, they would run away. Every time he loved them and cared for them, it would freak them out. And he thought, what if the only way that I could show them that I truly love them is if I jumped in the fish tank and became a fish myself and walked among them and loved them and served them and gave myself for them. Friends, that's what Jesus did. He became a fish and jumped in the fish tank in order to rescue fish. He became flesh and jumped in the flesh tank in order to rescue us who are flesh. Uh, after returning home from a long tour, Bono, the, uh, the lead singer for U2, for those of you who have been on another planet the last four years, uh, returned to Dublin and attended a Christmas Eve service. And at some point during the worship service, Bono grasped the truth at the heart of this story that in Jesus, God became a human being. And there were tears streaming down his face, he says. He, he says this, he says, the idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough that it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw, a child. I just thought, wow, just the poetry. I saw the genius of, of picking a particular time and, and, and deciding to turn on this love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There, there must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. And it has for our salvation. And friends, that means there's an urgency to this message. You hear it in verse 14 when John says, we've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father. He's He's speaking in the plural, speaking with all the other witnesses who also walked with Jesus and who saw Jesus and knew Jesus and saw the resurrected Jesus ascend to heaven. And he's pleading with us. He's saying, we know what we saw. This thing was not from our world. We saw one walk among us who was eternal. We saw God, the glory of God, walking in our, in our path. We saw the glory of God in signs that showed who Jesus was. We saw the glory of God filled with, with love, filled with grace and truth. What we saw, you don't want to miss out on. It's the most important decision you will ever have to make. This is, is serious. It's, it's not something to take lightly. The eternal power and intelligence behind the cosmos is an immense and fiery and terrifying movement of love. And he has come to us. And he is inviting you to come and to receive him, to receive his love and to walk in his love. Hear what he's saying. And yet, not everybody gets it. John writes in verse 5 that the darkness has not understood it. He writes in verse 10 and 11, he was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. That means his own people. And they did not receive him. It's a tragedy. You think, how could they miss this? It seems so foolish. Why, why not grab hold of salvation while there is still time? Before it's too late. We just watched another hurricane killed an awful lot of people. And yet we heard the government in the Bahamas and elsewhere begging people, please get off the island. Please get the high ground. Please evacuate. And not everybody evacuated. And the stories are chilling. You know, you wait too late to get to safety. 
And you go down, because it's a tornado, you go down to the basement. The basement fills up with water. So you go upstairs to the attic to escape the flood, to escape the storm surge. Only the attic fills up. So you climb onto the roof and you try to get over to a taller building, a concrete building, a building that still has a roof and you get swept away. Maybe you survive. And then you get out after the, after the storm and you walk into a puddle and are electrocuted by a down power line. Friends, John is pleading with you. Jesus is pleading with you. If you have not gotten to safety, there is still time to receive Jesus. There is still, it just takes a second. All you got to do is say, Jesus, you drive. I'm trusting you to be who you say you are and to do what you say you will do, to be my savior. And I am trusting you and I will walk with you, Jesus. That's, that only takes, nobody can do that for you. If you haven't done that, if you're not there, nobody can do it for you. And so the plea is here. Don't wait. Gab hold. Escape to safety, to Jesus, while you can. Because there's good news here. There's incredibly good news. Because to those who receive Jesus, you get a whole new way of relating to your God. We see grace, first of all, as a birthright in verse 12. To those who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the what? Right to be children of God. Not a privilege, a right. That means an entitlement. We often hear people say the Bible doesn't talk about rights, but about responsibilities. Well, it definitely talks about responsibilities, but the, the only basis we have for fulfilling those responsibilities is the indicative reality of what God has already done in claiming us and giving us a right to be his children. The Bible tells us it's the grace of God that teaches us to say no to sin. Jesus said it's he who's forgiven much that will end up loving God much. If you flip this, you end up with a crushing legalistic religion that's the opposite of Christianity and that will leave your soul dried up, empty, and ultimately lost. It's grace that drives this ship. And God goes so far as to give you the right to his grace, the entitlement of grace as a birthright. You say, Greg, I don't want to go around demanding that God bless me. It just sounds presumptuous. Friends, it is never presumptuous to expect God to be faithful to his own promises. He does not promise you health, wealth, or ease in this life. He does promise you full forgiveness of sins, the right to be able to walk into his presence any time of any day to bring all your needs. And he promises that he will use even the suffering of this life to bring you to glory so that you will praise him at the end of time when you look back and see what he has done. That is the right, friends, to be children of God. It's an outward faith, looking to him, believing him. To all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means receiving a gift, receiving a gift in humility, not bargaining, but coming with what, what Jerem Bars has called the empty hands of faith. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or of human decision or human will, but born of God. It was, it was 1990 in September or October that I remember going to a, uh, a Bible study. I grew up atheist, didn't believe in God, came to believe that there was a God in high school. And I remember going to a Bible study, a campus the University of Virginia, architecture student, and the title of the Bible study was How to Be Sure You're a Christian. And at the end of that Bible study, I went home to my dorm room sure that I was not a Christian, but I wanted to be. 
And I had been asking God to forgive me for my sins for probably a year or so. Um, Forgive me for everything, everything I was, everything I'd done. But for the first time in my life, I understood that when Jesus died on the cross, he was obligating himself to receive me when I come to him by faith. For the first time in my life, I wasn't just asking him to forgive me. I was thanking him for forgiving all of my sins. I was thanking him for receiving me into his family. I was thanking him for giving me eternal life because for the first time in my life, I was not looking to my religious performance or my theological conviction or my being a good person. I was looking outside myself to Jesus saying, Jesus, you said it. You did it. I trust you and I thank you. And friends, 30 years later, 29 years later, I've never looked back because Jesus is the Savior, because he's the God who came in the flesh to rescue your soul and your body forever. Let's pray. Father, our God, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for his death, for his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his current session at your right hand on our behalf and the fact that he is coming again to make everything right. Lord, we consecrate the elements on this table to you, Lord, that you would minister to our souls and to our community as the family of God, your church, that we might become outward-faced in service and love to others. We do all this in the name of Christ our Lord, consecrating the elements of this table to you now. Amen.